Father in heaven, I love your power and I love your mercy. And I love men and women who are so filled with it that they don't blink when they meet sin. Just keep pressing in until grace conquers. So I pray that you do that now in our days together. It's come in power, oh God, I pray. And show us your glory. Do your mighty work to clarify your gospel, to clarify your passion for our lives and your mission for our lives. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the aim of this message this evening, we're going to be together three times plus the the one on sexuality and gender. The aim of this message is not only to make the Christian gospel clear and single, one gospel, but to undomesticate the gospel and to show it to be jagged and unfamiliar, not smooth and familiar. Because my concern is that for many of us, you've heard something that you associate with the gospel and it's so smooth and it's so familiar and it's so domesticated, you can just slip it right into your pocket and carry it around and it hardly makes any difference at all. But my reason for taking this approach is so that when something in this particular time we live in terrifies you or makes you tense and sleepless or confuses you so you hardly know what to expect next coming down the cultural road or what is stomach-turning that you stumble across on the internet, say a slit throat on a beach in Libya, or causes you to be hopeless because your future looks so bleak, whether it's social security on the one side or some Syrian breakdown that threatens the whole world on the other side, or whether it's something that causes the ground to shift under your feet so you can't quite get your stability. When any of those things happen, will the gospel that you know be enough? That's my question. Will the smooth, domesticated, easily fitting into your back pocket gospel be sufficient in those moments of sleeplessness and confusion and stomach-turning atrocities and hopelessness and uncertainty and instability? Will it be sufficient? So I, I have felt, I, I'll just tell you right up front, I, I'm preaching this largely for myself because in recent weeks, I have felt all of those things because of the nature of the news. I, I felt a knot in my stomach reading and hearing and watching about the 130 people killed in Paris when was that? November 13. The same knot with 14 people gunned down in San Bernardino. I have this kind of 
trembling as I get out my phone that another announcement from the Center for Law and Justice is going to be there, which there is almost every day telling me of another kind of atrocity against Christians in the Middle East. I live within walking distance of a huge Somali community, and therefore every news item of increasing recruits from around the world to ISIS and Hamas and Hezbollah and Al-Qaeda and the 12 that I just read about a few weeks ago that were pulled right out of the community to which I can walk in seven minutes from my house to be a part of this. It makes a kind of, you're sitting on your couch at home and you're thinking, hmm, this is close. Or I have a kind of ominous sinking feeling in my heart when I read, what, two weeks ago now, that the Vatican, presumably with the Pope's authority, has announced that it's not only um, uh, permitted not to, but wrong to evangelize Jewish people. You have the Vatican telling the entire Roman Catholic Church it is wrong to try to win Jewish people to believe in Jesus as their Messiah. And I feel a kind of, what, what is going to happen next in the Roman Catholic Church? I felt a sickness when I read of the Christian college professor saying that Muslims and Christians worship the same God. I felt the same thing when the president of a big Christian university stands up and says to 10,000 students cheering in the stadium or in the arena that, that he wants them all to apply for their concealed carry so that they can all have guns and we can take out those Muslims when they show up here and try to do what they did in San Bernardino. And I said, is that what presidents do now? to help students have the mind of, of Christ. And then I, I, I see one kind of candidate running for office, just painting with a huge, broad brush, all Muslims of one kind. I see a candidate on the other side painting with the same naive brush in exactly the opposite direction, that there's no problem and tolerance is all that's needed with nobody seeming to own up to the complexities and difficulty that there are in those kinds of statements. So all the, the point of that is, I need this sermon, and, and what I need is, I sat there on my couch a few weeks ago, and I just, I said, Lord, are all these feelings that I'm having, these, these feelings of wobbliness and instability and, and a sense of insecurity, and just, what's the world coming to, and what will be the next thing in the news, and what will next year feel like, and is, what kind of future is there for me and my kids and my grandkids, what, what is this? And I, 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 the way I posed the question was, is the gospel of Jesus suited for this? Or is the gospel just, it needs the old America. It needs the old comfortable, everybody agrees on the basics, America to really flourish in and be useful. That's where this message is coming from. I felt, I feel the disconnect between a domesticated, smooth, familiar gospel and the, the world I now live in, in America. So here's the way I'm going to approach it. I want to start with the 
familiar and then move to the unfamiliar. Start with the text where many of you would expect me to start with the gospel as we understand it, and then a text where almost nobody would expect me to go to uh, take us to the jagged, unfamiliar, undomesticated dimensions of the gospel, which are all intended to show you that we have a gospel that is perfectly suited for the most horrible moment of your life and the life of the world, okay? So if you have a Bible and you want to follow along or you just want to listen, that's okay. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 to 4 is where we start. Paul's letter to the Corinthians, first one, chapter 15, first four verses. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. This is why you start here if you want a good, solid definition of the gospel. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, by which you are being saved, namely from God's judgment and wrath, If you hold it fast, hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, for I delivered to you as of first importance. It's another reason why this text comes to mind. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So notice three things. Number one, notice the word gospel there in verse one. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. And then notice, secondly, the response. If you receive it, if you stand in it, if you hold it fast, if you believe it. So receiving the gospel, standing in the gospel, Holding fast the gospel, believing the gospel is how the gospel becomes yours, becomes real for you, makes a difference for you. And then third, by which you are being saved, verse 2. So gospel, good news, you hold it fast when you hear it, you believe it, you bank your life on it, and it saves you. So the basis of the saving according to this text, is Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried. He rose again. So the good news is that though we have sinned, alienated ourselves from God, cut ourselves off, destined for destruction, God steps in, sends His Son, The son dies for sin, takes the place, sins are forgiven, righteousness is imparted, eternal life is granted, and you spend forever in joy in the presence of God. That's the basic good news of 1 Corinthians 15. Very, very familiar to many of us. I almost feel blasphemous, calling that statement that I just gave you um, familiar, smooth, domestic, when in fact, the one who died was very God of very God. He died on a cross, which was a horrible, 
means of torture, nothing domestic or smooth about it. It was jagged all the way down. And he did rise as a global glory from the dead, conquering sin and death and hell and Satan. And yet, I fear that for many of us who grew up in the church or somehow got familiar with Christ died for our sins, it's just become smooth and comfortable and domesticated and familiar and just kind of slips into the pocket and you just live as though it didn't exist. You just pull it out if you need a, a little encouragement because you might die and then you've got a fire insurance policy. I fear that. It shouldn't be that but I fear that it may be. So I'm going to turn now to the strange. So if you're with me in your Bible, go to the last book of the Bible. You would expect perhaps if you want to preach a strange sermon, go to the strangest book in the Bible, namely the book of Revelation. And we're going to look at one of the strangest chapters in the strangest book in the Bible, namely chapter 13, which is about the beast in the book of Revelation. And the goal here is not to understand everything that could be understood from chapter 13, but to understand how the gospel explodes in the worst of situations in chapter 13. And I have a little hermeneutical theory that I live my life by when it comes to hard passages to understand. And there are a lot of them in the Bible. And Revelation tops them all, perhaps. My theory, I call it the doctrine of least meanings. And what it means is this. If you go to any book in the Bible, any chapter in the Bible, and you read it and you say, I don't know what's going on here. Probably you can find some least meaning. At least I see a sentence here. At least this I can understand. That least meaning is vastly important and makes a difference in your life. That's the doctrine of least meanings. Here's another way to put it. The least thing that you can understand in the book of Revelation will change your life if you believe it. That's certainly true here in chapter 13. So we're going to read verses 1 to 8. No, let's read all the way down to verse 10 of Revelation 13, and the goal here is to just get the setting. You don't even have to know historically who the beast is. You don't even have to know when is this going to be or has it already been. <coughs> what you have to see in order to be changed by this chapter is how verse 8 works in the setting whenever and however it happens. Okay? So here we go. Verse 1. I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns, seven heads, with diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on his head. His heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's, its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon 
gave his power and his throne and great authority. Now, pause there. We do know who the dragon is because John tells us crystal clear. So let me read you chapter 12, verse 9. The great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. That's chapter 12, verse 9. So here it's saying the dragon, the devil, (coughs) gave his power and his throne, great authority to the beast. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So you get the whole world following the Satan-empowered beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? That's blasphemy. Those are words that belong to God. And the beast was given a month, a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Who who are they? Let me read verse 12 of chapter 14. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So every time you read the word saints in the book of Revelation, you are talking about the people who keep the commandments of God and have faith in Jesus. In other words, real Christians. Those are saints in the book of Revelation. And he just said that the beast was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. That's not a pretty situation. My question is, will your gospel be enough? And authority was given it over, given over, uh, is thought, and authority was given it over every tribe <coughs> and people and language and nation. Here comes verse 8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. And anyone, if anyone, has an ear, let him hear. That was as true then as it is right now. If you have an ear, hear verse 8. It'll totally change your life. If anyone is to be taken captive... To captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. 
That's a lot of you here in this room. Now, the point right now is for you not to get hung up on the identity of the beast or the time in history. The point for this message is the clarity and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we saw in 1 Corinthians 15, Christ dying for sins, rising again according to the scriptures so that sins are forgiven and eternal life is granted. That gospel breaking in in this horrible situation in verse 8 so that it's not quite as smooth and familiar as it was back then. So let's just make sure we see a few things. Verse 7, Christians are being conquered. The beast was allowed to make war on the saints and conquer them. What's conquer mean? Chapter 11, verse 7 makes clear what conquer means. Here's chapter 11, verse 7. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Conquer means kill. At least includes kill. So this was already happening when John wrote Revelation, first century. We know that because of chapter 2, verse 10. Jesus says to the church in Smyrna, Do not fear what you are about to suffer. So this is happening right as John is writing. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about, the devil, the dragon, is about to throw some of you into prison. He's using his human instruments to throw Christians in prison that you may be tested for 10 days and you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. That's what conquer is. Faithful unto death, I will give you the crown of life. So Satan is killing Christians by his agents. It was happening then. It is happening today in Syria, Iraq, Libya. It will always be happening somewhere in the world. Jesus said, some of you they will kill. I doubt that there's ever been a century in the last 2,000 years where that hasn't been happening in horrible ways. We just managed to isolate ourselves well enough in America in the last 200 years that we could live our little comfortable lives without any thought about it till now. This breaking in now is very, very strange. Verse 8. All who dwell on earth will worship the beast. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb that was slain. Now, just to make sure that you know, that's not a random, throwaway, isolated statement. Let me read Revelation 17.8. So, 13.8, 17.8, go together. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. 
because it was and is not and is to come. So one text says, if your name is not in the book, you worship the beast. And the other text says, if your name is not in the book, you marvel at the beast. Oh, isn't that marvelous? If your name is not in the book, that's how you respond. And into this situation of Christians being conquered, killed, John inserts verse 8. And I just want to give you maybe eight brief observations. And uh, I hope a lot of you have your Bibles because I dislike very much people taking my word for anything in the Bible. There is no authority standing behind this pulpit, okay? There is a big authority lying in your lap or on your phone. (laughs) Yes, there is. And if it's here, you better believe it. And if it's just me talking, you have no obligation to believe it. So if you don't see it now, go back to your room tonight, open it up, go to verse 8, check out these eight observations and see if... They are so. Number one, the word lamb. The book of the life of the lamb who was slain. Who is the lamb? Don't need a lot of Bible knowledge to know that. The lamb is Jesus. We know that. Chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So slain lamb, blood flowing, sins forgiven. The lamb is Jesus, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Observation number two, the word slain. The book of life of the lamb who was Slain. It's not says the lamb who died. It doesn't even say the lamb who was put to death. Sphagizumai in Greek. Slain is slaughter. Used consistently for what you do to lambs. You shave their throat. You slit the throat. You bleed them. Use the blood for the sacrifice. This, this is not a picture of the cross. This is a picture of horrible throat-slitting violence against the lamb of God. They slit his throat, so to speak. So he slaughtered the lamb that was slaughtered. This is the name of the book. Third word in the title of the book. Life. The book of the life of the lamb who was slain. So this is a gospel reality. When the lamb is slain, life happens. Life is taken away from the lamb. Life happens for somebody. Somebody gets life because of the slain lamb. So the book is called the book of life. That's what it's called in chapter 20 at the end, where the book of life is open. And if your name's not in the book, you're thrown in the lake of fire. So this is the book of your life, the book of your eternal life, because the lamb has lost his life. Someone gets life. Who gets life? The answer is those written in the book get life. This is the fourth observation, the word book. So, first, lamb, second, slain, third, life, fourth, 
book, the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. The names in the book live. They live. They have life because their names are in the book. Fifth, why do they live? Now it starts to get really important. Why do they live? Why do they have life? Why will they have life forever? So fifth observation. Being in the book keeps them from worshiping the beast. Look carefully with me now, because if you don't buy this, you, won't, you just don't want to buy the sermon. What, what's the relationship between believing Jesus and not worshiping the beast and having your name in the book? It's not that if I could just believe and not worship the beast, I could get my name in the book. No, it's the other way around. Your name is in the book, and therefore, you don't worship the beast. Let's read it now. You test whether you think that's, whether I'm interpreting that correctly now. There's nothing magical here about knowing original languages. This is really plain in English. Verse 8. All who dwell on the earth will worship the beast, will worship it. Everyone whose name is not written before the foundation of the world in the book. If your name is not in the book, you worship the beast. If your name is in the book, you don't worship the beast. There's something about being in the book that keeps you from worshiping the beast, not the other way around. You don't get your name in the book by being so strong you don't worship the beast. The reason you don't worship the beast is because your name has done something. Your name being there has moved God, evidently, to keep you from worshiping the beast. This is real precious to me. I'm going to turn 70 in January. And as I look back over seven decades, few things are more precious to me than the keeping power of God. I've asked audiences all over the country, maybe the world, what makes you think you're going to get up tomorrow morning and be a believer? And if they answer, I have a will, I'm going to do it. I say, well, that's a flimsy foundation for waking up and being a believer tomorrow morning because you might change your mind and go to hell. No, that's not why you'll be a believer when you get up in the morning. You'll be a believer when you get up in the morning because God keeps you. Your name is in the book. And he won't let you worship the beast or anything else that'll take you down. And that's precious to me because I'm a weak man. I'm an easily tempted person. And I have watched God step in again and again and again and snatch me, hold me, keep me. That's your only hope. Which is why verse 8 becomes increasingly precious. So why won't they worship the beast? I'm at observation number 6 now. Number 5 was 
Being in the book keeps you from worshiping the beast. And now number six is why? Why won't they worship the beast because they're in the book? And it seems to be, I'm drawing this out, see if you want to draw it out with me, that since the name of the book is the book of the life of the lamb that was slain, then the slaying of the lamb bought life for the people in the book. And therefore, the reason I'm not going to worship the beast is because he died to purchase my life and my protection. The, The blood that was shed by the lamb is the blood that bought my life, and my life is eternal, and therefore I won't worship the beast. It's the blood, it's the blood that's holding me and inclining God to say, he's mine, I won't let him go. So I think the answer in observation six here is the reason the people in the book don't worship the beast is because the name of the book is the book of the life of the lamb that was slain. He was slain for you and for your life and for your keeping. Part of eternal life is God's commitment to keep you. That's why you stay saved. It's not like an inoculation. <laughs> like, like I, I got an inoculation. Six, I'm going to heaven. Live like the devil for 80 years? I don't think so. The gospel is a relationship in which God Almighty commits himself in a covenant that cannot be broken to hold on to you. And he holds on to you by real relational dynamics like faith and warfare against sin. It's a beautiful thing. So you were bought. If your name is in this book and he will not lose his possession. Observation number seven, when was your name written in the book? Verse eight, again, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book. Now, I'm just going to insert here for intellectual honesty there is a grammatical problem that interpreters argue about here as to whether or not before the foundation of the world modifies names written, telling when they were written, or lamb slain, telling when, in God's mind, the lamb was slain. And it is ambiguous. And there's just a legitimate argument. What keeps us from agnosticism here is that in chapter 17 verse 8, you get the same reference, and there is no grammatical ambiguity, and nobody disagrees with what verse 8 says in chapter 17, so I'll read you that one. It's about the lamb, I won't read, I'll just say it's about, the, you can look it up, it's about the, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and the names written before the foundation of the world. So the answer is that both God views Jesus slain before the foundation of the world. The names are written before the foundation of the world. Which brings us to the last observation and the question. John, don't you know how controversial that is? Why in the world, in the context of the most horrific persecution, are you bringing up such a controversial doctrine? as when 
our names were written in the book of life, securing us from worshiping the beast forever. Why are you bringing that up? I mean, if we had nice leisure days in the university classroom, we can argue doctrine like that. But they're dying. People are dying. They're being slaughtered right and left. Wholesale persecution against Christians. And the saints are being conquered. And you're talking about when names were written in the book. When they were written in the book, John. I want to be known till my dying breath as a man who gets down low before the Bible and not over it. So I'm not going to talk to John that way. John's the inspired writer here, telling me what God has to tell me. And I'm going to say, okay, what can I learn and say in Milwaukee about why you'd bring that up here? A kind of 2016 horizon for these students who have, you have no idea what future they're going to face. None. You don't have any idea. Most of you in this room are going to live another 50 years. I'll be watching. I have no idea. Neither do you. Here's my answer to why John would bring this up here. Because that truth, that the names of the saints are written in the book of the life of the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world is because he intends to give them the deepest security and the deepest confidence imaginable. He's going to take their confidence and their assurance and sink it as deep into eternity as he can. So the situation is you're about to be killed. Satan and his beast have the upper hand in the world. I mean, what have you felt recently when you read news items like Christianity may become extinct in the Middle East. Extinct. What, what, does that make you feel triumphant? Does it throw you off guard? Do, do you have a biblical gospel to say that would be tragic and that would be biblical? Maybe. Maybe. In other words, you're not thrown off. This is not going to upset your gospel. This is not going to say, whoa, 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 I don't have a gospel that can handle that. Christianity's been in the Middle East 2,000 years unbroken. <laughs> Way longer than America with this little baby, baby nation over here. 300 years. I think that John is saying, look, if you walk into the mouth of the lion or the beast and your power to not worship the beast and not renounce Jesus is just you, 
and it's not rooted in God's eternal covenant to keep you, you won't stand. But if you walk in there knowing my name's been in the book a million years, you can't touch me. You'll stand. Which brings us now to this moment at at the end of uh, 2015 again. I don't know. I, I don't know how you pray. I'll tell you how I pray about your future. Not live long enough to see too much happen probably, but you will. Uh, maybe. I don't know whether God's going to give America another wonderful, great awakening with explosive conversions, churches overflowing, holiness embraced, love for the gospel, evangelizing the world, righteous and holy living. But I pray for that. I do. I have not given up on God's power to do that. I pray for that. I have a window in my study. It has a magnificent view of the cityscape of Minneapolis, which is a beautiful city and pagan to the core, in spite of all the Lutheran and Catholic and Baptist influence. And I look at the city every morning, and I say, God, you can do this. You can do this. You can pour out a spirit on this city, and there can be... Enormous faith and great awakening. But it may go the other way. It may go the other way. I don't know. There's nothing in the Bible that I can find that would make it impossible for God to do a mighty saving work in our land. And there's nothing in the Bible that I can see that would mean he could say, I'm done with America. It's a footnote. Islam can have it. I'm going to Africa, going to Asia going to South America. I'll do my thing elsewhere for a few hundred years. Then I'll come back and see what we do. I, I don't think anybody should be making very strong predictions here. So I'm simply saying that if it gets as bad as it could get, do you have a gospel that's jagged enough and rugged enough and unfamiliar and strange and controversial enough that when the beastly, let's call it beastly forces come, it won't throw you off. You'll be able to stand. We have a great gospel. The Lamb, very God of very God, very man of very man slaughtered according to Scripture, which means according to divine purpose and plan to save sinners so that the Holy Spirit could be poured into our lives and we would have power not to worship the beast or anything else. So I'm going to close like this. At the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 17, it says this. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Isn't it remarkable that having written about a book that has names in it from the foundation of the world, he would end by saying, you're thirsty? Come.
You may drink from the water of life, and it's totally free. The biggest question facing you at the end of this year is, is your name in the book of life? And guess what? You cannot know that by peeking. You can't know it by peeking. It's closed. It will be opened, according to chapter 20, at the great white throne. It will be opened. The books will be opened, and the book will be opened. You can read about that tonight if you want. You can't know if your name is in the book by peeking. You can know if your name is in the book by how you respond to the lamb who was slain. If you take him, if you receive him, believe him, stand with him, you're in the book. That's why you took him. He took you. So, Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Father, I pray, I'm sure in this room, there are some who do not yet believe the gospel of the Lamb who was slain for their sins. And I pray that you would open the eyes of their hearts and grant them to see the preciousness of the gospel of the Lamb who was slain. I ask this in his holy name. Amen.